Mark chapter 2, we continue to study the, the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus. And we mentioned last time that uh, as his ministry is growing and he continues to touch and change lives, we looked at one particular one where a leper came to him and he healed him. And afterwards, Jesus gave him a simple command, don't tell anybody. And what did he do? Went out and told everybody. And because of that, it told us that it became more difficult for Jesus to go into populated areas to do the ministry because people would just be swarming around him. Well, we pick up our story now. We follow along in, in Mark's narrative of, the, of his gospel in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, when he, that being Jesus, had come back to Capernaum, their home base of operations, the city town right there on the Sea of Galilee, came back several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening... They lay down, they let down, I'm sorry, let down the pallet on which the paralytic was laying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming, for who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went on out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus, after spending some time away from Capernaum in the, in the villages and other areas around the Sea of Galilee, and as we'll see in a moment, going even as far as Jerusalem, comes back to Capernaum. And we see right away that word gets out that Jesus is in the house travels throughout the city, and, and as I saw that and read through it a couple of times, I, I couldn't get past that without the challenge within myself and asking the question, and I bring this to you, what is heard from your home? What emanates from your house? Do your neighbors and the people that live around you and the people that would come to visit know that Jesus is in your home? Are, are the things that you do, the things that you say, the way that you respond, is it, a, is it an act of continual worship? Do people know that Jesus is at home in your home? I can remember back to when the church was first getting started and we were back in the school and we used to have the Bible studies during the week in different homes and we had the men's Bible study at our house at the time and we had a large covered patio out in the backyard and we used to have Tuesday night men's Bible study and it grew to the point where we'd have 30, 40 men there and we'd have worship at the beginning and then teaching right out in the backyard and one, one week, one of my neighbors, I was talking to him and he says, man, I just love Tuesday nights. I sit out in the backyard and I listen to the worship, and I, I listen to the teaching that's going on. I'm like, dude, come on over. <laughs> Join us. 
but it was going out. It was, it was emanating out from our home, and people were hearing that, and the word went out here. It's just a challenge that we need to continually bring to ourselves as followers of the Lord Jesus. Joshua says this, Joshua 24, 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether or the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need to make that determination. Who are we going to serve? And then if, when we do, it should radiate out that Jesus is in the house. Well, it goes out here. Jesus is gathered there at, at Peter's house, and, and the place is just packed. It tells us it's so full that people it can't even get to the door. Because you can imagine, probably several rows deep around the house, straining to listen as Jesus is teaching. They're trying to hear through the door, through any open window that might be there. And no doubt... As we will see, and just like any time, whenever there is a group of people gathered, there's a mixed multitude. There is no doubt people there that are absolutely convinced that Jesus is something special. Jesus, potential, even believing that Jesus, could he be the Messiah? There were others there, no doubt curious, that they had heard from others that were convinced, but they wanted to find out more themselves. They wanted to come and see. They wanted to come and hear this man whom we've seen earlier. When he spoke, they're like, man, this guy doesn't speak like the scribes we listen to. He speaks with authority. And we know that that comes because he is God himself speaking out the, the living word, speaking the living word. But no doubt others, as we will see, are there and they're critical cynical, looking to try to find holes, trying to find problems. As I mentioned, Jesus has already visited Jerusalem. We see that in John's account, John's gospel. John chapter 2 and 3 have already taken place by the time we're here in Mark chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus goes to the temple there, and it's the time of Passover. And when he arrives, John tells us that he sees the money changers and everything that's going on out in the temple courts, and it infuriates Jesus. He makes a whip out of some cords and he drives the money changers out, turning over the tables. Also in John chapter 3, after that, we see the story of Jesus in his encounter with Nicodemus, a Pharisee who comes to him at night and he says something very interesting. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he says, we know that you come from God as a teacher. We know that because nobody can do the things that you do unless they're sent from God. Nicodemus understood that. So no doubt there were other Pharisees that also did, but a large group of Pharisees didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They just wanted to find out and prove that he was wrong, that he was a, a false teacher, and we'll see. Even here we see the, the claim that he is a blasphemer. And it tells us Luke's gospel says that they came from every village, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, these Pharisees as they come. They're listening to Jesus speak. He's sharing with them. And as our story unfolds here this morning, it's, it's an amazing thing what takes place. We see four men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And no doubt, when they first came, they're coming carrying, and this, it says pallet, that means a bed that he's on. They're carrying that, and they pr probably come to the front door and saying, hey, can you let us through? We want to get our friend to see Jesus. And they're like, shh. Quiet, quiet. And nobody's cutting these guys a break. Just packed in. 
But instead of saying, you know what, let's come back later or let's come back tomorrow, these guys are determined. They wouldn't let this barrier, they wouldn't be deterred from their mission of getting their friend to Jesus. So what do they do? They go up on top of the roof. The way homes were built then, they had flat roofs, most of them one story, some even two stories, and they would have a flat roof that they would have beams on the inside of the home, but then on top of that would be sticks and branches and dirt, several layers of that, up to two feet thick. And then on top of that, there would be tiles or, or stones that were laid on top. Many times they would spend a lot of time up on the roof. There would be a stairwell, outdoor stairwell, to get up on the roof. They go up on top of the roof, and another gospel tells us they remove the tiles, and here we see in Mark, they start digging through. And can you imagine... Jesus teaching there, the place is packed full, and then all of a sudden you hear this, and looking up and dirt and twigs and stuff like that falling down, and everybody wondering what is going on. All of a sudden, light comes through, this hole that's in the top, and, and then all of a sudden, here comes this body being lowered down into the room. Can you, everybody just stopped and looking up. What's evident to me about these four men is twofold. First of all, their love for their friend. It's a love like that. It takes, it takes a great love to go to that extent for somebody on their behalf. And the, the love for them, is, is this love for this friend is evident, but also the faith that they have. These guys are convinced. You don't go to this type of extent if you don't have faith that if we get our friend to Jesus, Jesus is going to do what nobody else can. Here we see love and faith in action. It's easy to say, I love you. It goes to another realm to show and to prove our love for one another. Jesus said, the world's going to know that you belong to me by the love that you have for one another. He talks about that love in other places. He says, if you love those who treat you well, who do good things, who love you first, you're no different than the rest of the world. He challenges us to love our enemies. He challenges us to put our love into action, real agape love. And so these guys, they love their friend and faith in action. It's one thing to say I believe something. It's a total other thing to put that faith into action, showing that I really believe what I say I believe. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works, what it is that I do as I live it out as an example. Well, again, back to this, this, this scene. It says that Jesus seeing their faith, that we don't know if he's talking about the four that are on the roof alone or the five total together, but it says, seeing their faith, seeing their faith in action. Notice how Jesus responds. The man now before Jesus, he says, son, literally child, your sins are forgiven. Imagine again the scene here. Jesus now looking into this man's eyes looking through his eyes and into his very heart, into his very soul. Just imagine this encounter, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, commentators argue about this as to whether this man's paralysis was directly caused by some sin. The truth of the matter is, Scripture does not tell us. 
And so we have to be careful from drawing that conclusion because the Bible does say in many instances that that things that happen aren't necessarily a direct result of a person's sin in their life. We've just finished recently studying the book of Job on Wednesday nights, and we see very clearly there what he was experiencing was not because of sin, a direct sin in his life. John chapter 9, another example, Jesus and his disciples walking by a blind man. His disciples say, is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, neither. It wasn't because of sin that he's blind. As a matter of fact, it was so that God could be glorified in this moment. So we don't know whether it's a direct result of a sin in his life as to why he has this paralysis, but there is one thing that we can be absolutely certain of. He is a sinner. How do we know that? Because he's breathing. He's a, he's a sinner. He, the Bible tells us that by nature we are children of wrath. Until we come into a saving relationship with, Je- with Jesus, the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so imagine this moment, again, face to face. This man now, we don't know, again, the exchange. And I can only imagine as he's being carried, and then they say, their friends are, his friends are like, okay, we got to get him. Let's, let's try this. Let's go up on the roof. Let's dig through a hole in the roof and lower him down. He can't do anything about it, but I'm guessing he was like, hey, guys, let's, let's talk about a plan C. Maybe, let's, let's, how about we come back tomorrow? They wouldn't be deterred. They finally lower him down, and here he is in the middle of the room. All of these people around watching, and I can only imagine that when he locked eyes with Jesus, everything else went away. It was just a sinner and the Holy One of God. Face to face, eye to eye. And the only issue in this man's life at that moment was his sin. Everything else doesn't matter. Everything else falls away. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, a a godly, holy man in his day, compared to everyone else, a a blameless man. But when it tells us in Isaiah 6, when he gets a glimpse into heaven and he sees God seated on his throne, his response is, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. I am a sinner deserving deserving the wrath of God. And it tells us, though, again, God's heart. He sends an angel to to grab a, a coal from the altar and go in to touch his lips and says, you are forgiven. And here we see Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Matthew adds an element again of the heart of Jesus when he says, he says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Because again, only, can, you can only imagine as his heart is pounding and he's looking into the face of the Holy One. <laughs> Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus deals with the real problem. He cures the disease. He doesn't just treat the symptom. He doesn't just heal the man's legs so that he could get out and have two healthy legs to walk into hell with. He deals with the real issue. 
I love Psalm 103 when it speaks to us again about God's heart towards us. Because again, remember, his holy gaze, his holy, it should incinerate us as sinners, but his heart toward us is forgiveness. Psalm 103 says, he has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Praise God for that. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's a way of saying that immeasurable distance is the distance that measures his love toward us. God so loved us, so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It goes on, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sins from us. Now, if you haven't heard this before or understand how important the east is from the west in this, if he'd have said, as far as the north is from the south, your sins are removed from you, that's a long way. I mean, the North Pole and the South Pole, that's a great distance. And if certain things were removed from me that far, I'd be good with, not my sin, I got to be way further away from it than that. North, you go north far enough, eventually you're going to start going south again. You go south far enough, eventually you're going to be going north again. You go east and never turn around, you will never go west. Same thing going west. And that's the illustration we see here. That's how far God's removed our sin from us. Jesus literally tells this man, your sin is removed. Warren Wiersbe says, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price, and it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. Jesus does something in this room with all of these people watching that is totally unexpected. No one's ever seen something like this before, where someone would say, your sins are forgiven, without going to Jerusalem with a sacrifice and, and, and doing all of that thing. So what was everybody thinking in the room? We don't know for sure what most were thinking. Guess. I can only imagine what that paralytic was thinking. He was just transfixed looking into the eyes of Jesus and overwhelmed with praise. No doubt he, he, he sensed his sins had been cleansed and washed away. He knew that was his greatest need. The people that were around in wonder, again, never heard this before, never heard a man tell another man that his sins were forgiven without going through all of the other things, wondering what is going on. His friends the four that still stick in their head through the hole in the roof, watching intently on what's going on. They're like, forgive his sins. Jesus, we brought him to you so that he could walk again. Peter, what was he thinking? Who's going to fix that hole in the roof? We don't know. Those are educated guesses. <laughs> educated, that's my pride sticking through. Those are guesses. <laughs> Guys, for just, just real quick, jump off right there. That is always dangerous to try to guess what other people are thinking. We are wrong the vast majority of the time. But you know who's never wrong? Jesus. Jesus knew exactly 
what they were thinking. Jesus knows exactly what you're thinking. Jesus knows the, the depths and, and, and the, what's going on in your heart. He knows what, what the, the Pharisees and scribes are thinking, and he, we get, that gets revealed to us. That we do know. We see that, that some no doubt had an open mind and an open heart and want to understand more, but many had a very critical heart. Yes, what, part of what they said is true. Only God can forgive sins. That's absolutely right. But Jesus has been continually showing that he is from God, that he is the Messiah, that he is God himself. And they had closed themselves off completely to that because only God can forgive sin, but they jumped to this point that what he's saying is blasphemy, absolutely false. You see, a critical heart will always find something to criticize. Here we have proof of it. Jesus, they're, they're being critical of Jesus. But an open heart and an open mind to the truth, Jesus loves, the Lord loves to reveal himself to those that diligently seek him. Second Chronicles 15 says, if you seek him, he will let you find him. That's his heart. That's his desire. God's not into this great cosmic hide and seek game. He truly does want to reveal himself to us, but we have to come with the right heart. Jesus no doubt blows their minds when he says, why are you reasoning that way in your hearts? They're like, what are you talking about? Jesus reads their minds. Again, no doubt that had to pop into the head. Hey, only God can do that. He knows what we're thinking. But he gives them something else to ponder, something else to think about as they're wrestling through this in their mind. He says, what is easier? What's easier to do? To tell somebody that your sins are forgiven and no one could prove it, whether it's right or wrong, or to tell a lame man to get up, pick up his bed and walk. And notice this, and this is important. Notice verse 10, so that you may know. He's saying, I am going to give you irrefutable proof. What you're going to do with it is up to you, but so that you can know. And then he calls his shot again, that the son of man, Daniel chapter seven tells us that that is a messianic title, the son of man. When Jesus said it, he knew what he was saying. And so did the Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying, who he was claiming to be. So that you may know that the son of man has authority, not just ability, not just audibly saying it, but the authority to forgive sins. He says to the lame man, get up, pick up your bed, go home. And the man does. Again, irrefutable proof. God, Jesus doing the impossible with a word. Now, I want to take our focus and attention away from uh, the Pharisees. And let's go back to the man in the middle of the room. When I think of this, and I, again, the exchange as it's taking place, first of all, again, blown away that here, here I, my sins have been forgiven, but now here, Jesus telling me, get up. If I could have gotten up, I wouldn't be here. Take your bed and walk. If I was walking, I'd have been out with them. I wouldn't have had to have been lowered down. I can't get up and walk. That's impossible. I'm paralyzed. 
I can't do that. But we don't see that exchange. We don't even see that he even had any hesitation, whatever. As a matter of fact, the word immediately is used. Immediately, he responded by doing the impossible and literally walking by faith. The steps that he took had to be taken in faith because everything about him, everything in his physical frame up until that point said, it's impossible for me to walk. Yet Jesus is saying, walk. And when Jesus said that, everything, everything that caused his paralysis was immediately removed. It wasn't a process of where, okay, if he decided to move his right arm, then his left arm could move. And if he did that, then his right leg could move. No, immediately everything that caused his paralysis was removed. And that begs the question, what is paralyzing you? What is it that is standing in the way of you being everything that God has called you to be? As a child of God, the Bible tells us that we have everything that we need for a life of godliness. Everything that we need to fulfill the calling and purpose that God has for us uniquely and individually. And yet so many Christians, so many desiring to serve the Lord, desiring to follow after him, say, I can't. I feel this call to do this, but I can't. What, what's paralyzing you? What is in the way? Is it fear? Is it fear of failure? I wonder, I wonder if it just even crossed his mind that, you know what, if I do what Jesus said, if I get up and I fall down, I'm going to be a fool in front of all of these people. Yet that didn't stop him. Is it doubt? Is it doubt? Did, did I really hear God say that? Do I really, is it, was it really God that was saying those things to me to, to call me to do that? Is it something in your past? Again, we don't know what, what caused this. We don't, we don't know what this man's past had. Jesus didn't care. Perhaps it's still some area in your life, some sin in your life, something in your life that is still not Christ-like that the Lord is telling you to deal with, telling you to do away with, telling you to be obedient in, and yet your response and your flesh is, I can't. I can't do that. Maybe, too, you fall into that category of paralysis by analysis. That you overthink in everything. And man, God, God couldn't possibly be speaking this to me because that doesn't fit into my one, or, one of two boxes. My yes box, no box. Right, bo right box, wrong box. White box, black box. It's got to fit into one of those two. Guys, God works in a color spectrum we have no comprehension of. As born-again believers, we are a new creation. The Bible tells us that, that old things have passed away, new things. We are to walk by faith. So my challenge to you is today, if you're dealing or struggling in that area, walk by by faith. Take that step. Yes, everything within you is going to be saying, I can't. Jesus says, yes, you can, because I said. <laughs> Jesus' commands are his enablements. When it comes out of his mouth, you have the ability. 
And when we do that, we walk by faith, we do this. Man, look at this guy's life. He left this building completely different than the way he came in. His sins are forgiven, and he's walking out after being dropped in. And everybody's amazed, blown away. Well, not everybody. We know there's some, as we'll see, still critical, but an amazing thing. We've never seen anything like this before. Well, let's continue verse 13. It says, and he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore. Again, Capernaum is right along the seashore. He goes down and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. Again, notice again, Jesus' emphasis on teaching, on the word of God, because that is what truly changes. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So many that saw Jesus' miracles, even those that were changed by his miracles, will walk away from Jesus because of what he says. But it's truly the word of God when it penetrates our hardened hearts that changes us. Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining, Jesus at the table in his house, that's Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, many tax collectors and sinners, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus goes about again and and meeting with people, working at seashore, comes back into town. It says he crosses by a tax booth. And we're introduced to a man here. His name is Levi. We know him better as Matthew, the one who will record for us the gospel of Matthew. And it says, and we look at, we piece together Mark's account and Luke's account, that again, Levi, a Levite, working as a tax collector in a tax booth. He wasn't just there. He was a tax collector. And and that means that he didn't have a whole lot of friends. As a matter of fact, his only friends would be other tax collectors and sinners because the Jews hated him because he's a sellout to Rome. He's sitting in a tax booth, collecting taxes from the Jews, sending a portion on to Rome, keeping the others for himself, the Romans don't like him because he's a Jew, so he's in, he just, he's, he's in a really bad spot. But it's interesting when you read Matthew's account of this, he doesn't speak of him being a tax collector. He doesn't speak of him being a sellout or a traitor. He says he's a man, a man that Jesus, again, makes eye contact with and looks past what you and I can see, and he looks into his heart, and no doubt sees a man who's broken. No doubt sees a man who feels his situation is hopeless. No doubt many times thought, how did I get myself into this situation? And how can I get myself out? And here Jesus comes, and he makes eye contact with him, and he looks at him, and he says, follow me. And Luke's account tells us that he left everything and follow Jesus, immediately gets up. This wasn't like the fishermen. When they left, they could go back to being fishermen. 
Matthew, when he walks away from the tax booth, this isn't like, hey, if this doesn't work out in a couple of weeks, I'll come back. No, he left everything to follow Jesus. You can imagine, again, the transformation, what's going on in his heart as he follows this man, this one. So moved by that, it tells us that he throws a party. He invites Jesus and all of his sinner friends, and Jesus goes. Jesus goes and, and interacts with them. And when he's, he's eating at the table with them, and, and in that culture at that time, that was a big no-no, especially for the religious elites. You don't do that. And that's why they, the question comes, why is your master, why is Jesus eating with those sinners? Well, my sarcastic mind if Jesus didn't eat with sinners, he'd always be eating alone, and that would get boring after a while. <laughs> so he eats with sinners. But we know, because Jesus tells us here, this is why I came. I came as a physician, and I didn't come to find the healthy ones. I came to find the sick and to heal the sick. Jesus is the, the perfect doctor, and he's making a house call. Jesus, as he's saying that, he's not, he's not indicating when he says the healthy don't need a doctor. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. Understand, he's not saying that there are some healthy and righteous that don't need me. That's not what he's saying. The Greek, the way it's laid out is those that are self-righteous, those that have made the self-diagnosis that I'm healthy, Jesus says, I can't help them. I came to help those that realize they're sick realize that they need a doctor, realize that they cannot cure themselves and they need a cure. And Jesus comes with the perfect diagnosis, the complete cure, and oh, by the way, he pays the bill too. What a doctor. All that's left for us is to admit that we're sick and confess that we have no way of fixing our sickness. See, the Bible tells us that Again, because of sin, we all have this sickness that will lead to death. No one is immune, and no one can fix the problem themselves. And when it speaks of death, it doesn't just speak of our physical death. It speaks of an eternal spiritual death where we will face the wrath of God, separated from the love of God forever. And we have, again, that is, that's the sickness. That is, that is what we have. And there's only one cure. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He came, born a virgin, born of a virgin, living a perfect, sinless life, and then going to the cross, dying on the cross, bleeding out into the ground his perfect blood for you and I. That's the cure, and that is the only cure. But we have to admit that we need it, and we have to receive it. Jesus lays this out clearly. In our last 
minutes as we tie this together here. There's several things that just, again, kind of refreshing me that were refreshed as we go back through that challenged me in this. You know, we look at these friends that are back at the beginning, the friends of this paralytic man and their determination to get their friend to Jesus because of the great love that they have for their friend and the faith that they have in Jesus. And guys, how determined are we in that? To bring our friends, to bring our our loved ones, to bring our neighbors, to bring our co-workers to Jesus? Are we going to let those things that will be barriers in that deter us, slow us down, get us off track? Because hear me, there will be barriers. The enemy is going to make sure of that. I'm challenged by these guys that they did whatever it took And we need to do whatever it takes. We need to have that sense of urgency in us. We need to pray for opportunities. We need to act as God opens those opportunities. We need to share our testimony. We need to share the whole gospel. As we talk many times, the gospel has been so watered down because so many people are so afraid to share it. Guys, they got to know they're sick before we bring the cure to them. But sharing the entire gospel. Invite them to to Bible study. Invite them to come to church. Maybe you're here today and you were invited by somebody to come. And you're still kind of wrestling through this whole thing about this this whole Jesus thing. Maybe maybe you were invited by by a sinner today. And here you are in this room, and you're, you're thinking and looking around, man, there's this just a bunch of, bunch of holy rollers, a bunch of, you know, no, understand this. We are all a bunch of sinners saved by grace. The only difference between us and you is we have acknowledged our sickness and accepted the cure. We talk a lot where we, we refer to Calvary Chapel Surprise as a hospital on Greenway and Reams. And understand that this is not a perfect place. We just serve a perfect master. We have a perfect doctor. There aren't perfect people here. We are all in process. But we stand before our perfect God, our perfect creator, declared righteous because we're clothed in his righteousness, washed in his blood. Today, if you have never done it today, you can have your sins forgiven. You can look into the eyes of your creator and hear these words, your sins are forgiven. But you have to come humbly. You have to come broken before the only one who can save you. But he wants to meet you here today. It's also just again a challenge to each and every one of us as Christians, as we walk, as we run the race that is set before us, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we don't let the things that so easily entangle us trip us up, but we cast those things aside. Again, walking, running by faith. Don't let the enemy convince you that you've, that, that, that you're, that you've blown it, that you've disappointed him, that, you, that all this. No, fix your eyes on Jesus. 
Whatever it is that you say right now is, I can't take that next step. Jesus says, yes, you can. Take it in faith. My prayer is that as this man left differently than he came, that every one of us would leave differently today. Some of us, I pray, that radically different. Came in, buried in in sin, hopeless, helpless, completely paralyzed, and you run out of here dancing today, forgiven of all of your sin, freed of all of your chains. But others, others, that if there's anything that's a barrier, anything causing that paralysis, that you would, as Jesus will tell you in your heart, take that step that you would. We can't have an encounter with him ever without being changed. I love the fact that we celebrate communion together today as we prepare to leave. And as we do that, my prayer is that the Lord would do again a special work in us. Communion is a special thing that we celebrate together. Would you please stand with me? We'll pray and then sing a song together of of worship. And as we sing, the the ushers will distribute the elements. As the trays pass by, please make sure that you grab both cups, the bread's in the bottom cup, the juice in the top cup. Lord Jesus, we're gathered here together today, a mixed multitude. Lord, some of us absolutely, totally convinced that you are who you are. Some curious, no doubt. Some even critical. Lord, we pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would move in each and every heart. Lord, would you comfort those that need comforting today? Holy Spirit, would you convict those that need conviction? An amazing God. That you didn't stop at anything. You wouldn't let anything stop you from fulfilling your mission. of being that perfect sacrifice for us. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we praise you for who you are. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, it's a matter of repenting. Repentance means to turn from your self-reliance, your self-righteousness, your your idea that that you can do this on your own. it's, it's turning from that. It's turning from your, your sin. It's turning from your lifestyle, and it's turning to Jesus and receiving his gift of forgiveness. And you know you need it. Don't harden your heart. Allow him to do that work in you today. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.